proves every missiological theory. Look around. 80% of people in our churches receive Christ between the ages of eight, 4 and 18. You may be seated. And yet, we invest 80% of our resources on people who are relatively older than that. Imagine this, imagine this. One of the, one of the products of PepsiCo is Mirinda. I don't know if you have heard of the word Mirinda. Mirinda is like, is the, is the Pepsi equivalent of Orange Crush. It's so well known that you don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Mirinda only represents less than half a percent of PepsiCo global sales. It's an obscure Spanish brand of very, very sweet orange stuff. What would happen if PepsiCo would decide to invest 80% of its marketing, research, promotion, sales, and budget on promoting Mirinda and only 10% of pro on promoting Pepsi? This is what would happen. PepsiCo would go bankrupt. Don't you agree? Simple math. Well, that's what is happening with the church. Evangelist Moody was in Chicago, and he was, uh, he was preaching at an event, and, and uh, he came back, and his wife asked him, how did it go, hon? And, and, and he said, well, it, it went well. One and a half people received Christ today. And the wife said, what? Yeah, a 42-year-old a and a 9-year-old. Oh, I get it. Yeah, 42-year-old and 9-year-old, one and a half. And he said, no, 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 wrong math. See, the 42-year-old has already wasted half of his life. He only has half a life to give for the kingdom. This 8-year-old has an entire life to give for Jesus. One and a half. The equation of missions, we, we, have it, we have it figured out the wrong way. The kingdom of God has been given to, to the last, to the least of them. We just don't get it. We're too comfortable just playing the foreign legionary club thing. Let, let, let me explain this to you. Let me explain the, the missionary equation. I, I'm going to share with you something that I called, I'm running out of time. As you probably heard, I was regional director in Eurasia for about 10 years, and, and we lived in the, in the border between, uh, between Germany and Switzerland, and that's a beautiful place to, to live in if you live there. But if you only spend three days a month, that's a good place to visit. When people came and, 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 and you know, a lot of people heard of Switzerland, they wanted to come, so we were good, good hosts, and so we decided to to take in places, and there's a beautiful place in the, in the Black Forest that we would take a, a visitors to. There is a lake, the Lake Titise, close to the, to the Black Forest town, and, and what we would do is we'd take them to, to, you know, to, to the shops, and, and there in that place, by the Lake of Titise, they, they sell all this uh, stuff that, that, you know, like the, short, the shorts that the Germans, how do you call the Lederhosen things, you know? I never bought one of those because I don't have the legs for a Lederhosen. <laughs> Uh, but in walking by, I saw this, 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 this sweater. Like, it, it reminded me of my dad's sweater. 
My dad would like to, to wear those that look like a vest. They are, they are woolen, and then, but then you, you close them from the front. And I thought, ah, oh, this is good. I'm going to buy one for my dad. Plus, it was 10 euros, so it was, that was good. <laughs> and I decided, you know what? I'm going to buy two of those, one for daddy, one for me. See, things do change. When you are a teenager, you want, you want nothing but to dress like your dad. Then when you are in, in your 30s, you, you basically respect that the fact that dad is kind of uh, out-fashioned, and you are developing your own sense of fashion. But then when your brain kind of settles, there are things that you would like to do like your dad used to do. So uh, what I did was I said, I would be cool to have my, my sweater like dad's, and, and, and so I'm going to buy two of them, and I'm going to give it to my dad for, his, for Christmas. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. It was October, and I thought I'm going to give this sweater to dad for Christmas. And I bought it, and I bought mine, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to give it to dad, and then, and then I'm going to unpack mine, he's going to unpack his, and we're both going to wear it when I take a picture, you know, dad and son. Well, uh, because we were in Germany and Dad was in Guatemala, we couldn't connect uh, the certain things, time and money. And those two, when they don't connect, you cannot travel. So we couldn't go for Christmas, and I just left it in the closet. And every time I thought, well, next year, for his birthday, we're going to be at General Assembly. It's a closer jump from, at that time, from, from Orlando, from Orlando to Guatemala. It's just like a small jump. I'm going to go. It's his birthday, my dad's birthday was July 25th, mine was July 27th, it's just two days apart. That's really good. We're going to go and we're going to have a birthday celebration. I'm going to gift myself my sweater. My dad is going to get jealous about it. And then two days later, I'm going to give him his. And we're going to take the picture. That's, I had, it, I had it well planned. I'm an architect. You know, we plan things over. I mean, it's too much. So I, the plan was there and I, I put him in, 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 in my suitcase and, and came to General Assembly in 2009, and everything was ready, but my dad passed away two days after General Assembly, before his 80th birthday. I could not deliver the sweater. Bummer. That sweater stayed there for four years. I took it back to... Germany, and I put it in a closet next to mine. I never wore mine. And every time I was, I was looking for something to, to travel, and I was just, just moving across all the, suit, the suits and stuff, there it was. Daddy's sweater next to mine. My youngest daughter came to visit once, and she said, Dad, you know what? Retro is in, and I've seen you wearing those, those sweaters, and, and I saw one in your closet, and can I have it? And I said, sure, just take it now before it's too late. And she took it, and then I took mine, and I said, hey, let's take a picture before it's too late. See, I was waiting for the right moment, for the right occasion, for the right circumstances, for the right everything. I was, I was waiting for the perfect, for the picture-perfect moment to deliver to my dad a gift. The search for the perfect moment spoiled the gift. For daddy never received it. 
The missionary equation is an equation that, in, in which the gift, the gift, the most important gift is something that cannot wait for the perfect moment. In fact, let me, let me take you to a story that illustrates all the actors in the missionary equation. Here's the this, this story. Again, remember I told you I'm, 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 I'm not a good missionary to tell. In fact, I could not afford a good video, so I had just a figurine video to bring you here today. The stories I tell come from this story. Let us stand up to read from this story. It's in Mark chapter 2. You have heard this story. You have preached from this story. You have played it in, 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 in church dramas and plays. But let me read it to you. I, I call this a, a missionary sermon with a twist. Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. You may be seated. This is an incredible description of the missionary equation. Let me describe to you, if this was a play, if this was a play, I, it's, it's very fitting to recognize the actors in the play. The, and, and I'm going to describe to you that if we're going to put together... It, it, I was just watching uh, this morning the news and the Tony Awards are coming and, and Broadway. And all. If this was a musical, if this was a play, I would have to introduce you to you the actors in the missionary play. Every time we come to missionary conventions, the, the word is missions. I mean, we cannot get away from it. But as we do missions, as we understand missions, let me just give you the perspective of all the actors that, that play in this Missions enterprise. The first actor in the missionary equation is Jesus. Jesus. We didn't talk about the, the topic. I wasn't told that you were going to, to, to focus on inward stuff. God kind of takes care of that. Because I have been persuaded that we cannot do missions unless Jesus is home. See, the scripture starts with the story that Jesus had come home. That's an important statement. It is not placed there just to illustrate, just to decorate the story. It's essential. Why did that say the people heard that he had come home? Because in the missionary equation, the central part is Jesus at home. If Jesus is not at home, the missionary enterprise is a foreign legionaries club. I, I, I drove through Maine and there was this, this old building and it said... Legionaries of foreign words, today meeting, tomorrow bingo. 
I thought, that sounds like some of our missionary societies. When Jesus is not home. See, we could be engaged in, in foreign activism. We could be engaged in a lot of, of band-aid rolling and, 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 sorry, and book delivery. And we could be engaged in a law and on a lot of offering, raising. But if Jesus is not home, I'm sorry, this is just another legionary society. It's the, it's, the, it's the Nazarene version of the Lions Club or the Rotaries. It's exciting. It's a good club to be a, club to be a part of. But the central piece in the missionary equation is Jesus. Because what we are delivering is not a program. What we are delivering is not even a doctrine. What we are delivering is not a franchising of McDonald's. What we are delivering is Jesus. This is so essential. The first and central actor in the missionary equation is Jesus. It's sad, but I have encountered volunteers, even missionaries, who have come, and I realized that they were delivering something they were not convinced about. In fact, I had a couple of volunteers that I even asked them, are you sure that Jesus is home? See, I, I have found volunteers and short-termers that some of them are just running away from a bad divorce, running away from a bad debt, or they just retired and they, are, and they are finding something to do, or the wife just said, don't you have a trip to take? And they go and they label themselves missionaries. But Jesus is not home. So the first essential, central piece in missions is that Jesus is home. Amen? Here's the second, here's the second actor. The second actor in the missionary equation is the church. The church. It says that there was a large crowd. Now, I'm going to quickly give you a, an x-ray of church because in, a, in, a, in an audience like this, it's hard to find because you are, it's like preaching to the choir, you know. You come to assemblies and conventions, um, chances are that 90% of people, well, okay, it's 100%, but just in case, Chances are that 90% of the people who come already, Jesus is home. That's, that's accurate to say. It would be a bummer if that's not the case. But still, let me, let me tell you what we have found in church in general. Let's say that the, 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 the empty, the, 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 the non-parts here. There, there are at least four types, four, there are at least four behaviors within the church as it relates to missions. The first, and I pray the largest, are those who are there because Jesus is home and they are there to experience his presence. Amen? Thank you for ushering us today to his presence. In a, in a crowd like this, not everybody is present. I'm talking about the scripture, not this. But who knows? In a crowd like this, not everyone who is there is there because Jesus is home and because we came to celebrate his presence. There's a second group. It's what I call, I call the attendance by tradition. They're the ones who are in the crowd because, because I heard that Jesus is there and 
and I am related to someone who is related to someone who is related to the person in the middle called Jesus, so I'm going to show up. In a crowd, we find a lot of traditional people. Those who are Christians, but without Christ. Wait a second, what are you saying? Well, you know, your district superintendent comes from a place that is 100% Christian. I was walked by, by Reverend Phil McAllister, the district superintendent of the British Isles North District, and, and I asked him, tell me about the Ulster. Tell me about the religious makeup of, the, of Northern Ireland. And he said, well, it's very simple. 60% are Protestant, 40% are Catholic, and 15% are born again. I said, say again? He said, yeah, 60% are Protestant, 40% are Catholic, 15% are born again. 60 plus 40 plus 15. That sounds like Bernie Sanders math, I said. <laughs> no, 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 no. He said, look, 100% claim to be Christians, but only 15% are born again believers. In a given crowd, you're going to find people who in the missionary equation, they are there for their flag, their cultural icon, and not for the name of Jesus. In a setting, they are there because great-great-grandpa was a Methodist preacher and great and, and great grandpa became a preacher and then grandpa was a layman was an incredible layman and my then my mother was a was a pillar in the church so if I don't do it I'm I'm basically shaming my legacy. There are those in the church. They may not have a relationship with Christ, man, but they're there. They are they are willing to defend. They're white with a cross flag, even if they do not know what that means. And there's a third group in the crowd. I, I, I identified with that crowd when I grew up a Nazarene. I was not a Christian. It does happen. You'll hear my sermon tomorrow night if you, if you come. I was a Nazarene. I was not a Christian. But I went to church every time I was told because I loved my food, my laundry, and my skin. <laughs> In other words, Dad had just told me, you want to live in this house? You want to eat in this house? You want your laundry done? And, and you do not want to get the verbal or else spankings? You come to church. That was very simple. So I went to church for my own safety. <laughs> we have people who are part of the crowd because of obligation. We do. There's a fourth group that I'm going to leave alone for a moment because I want to introduce to you the third actor in the missionary equation. The third actor in the missionary equation is what I call the object of missions. There it is. A crippled man. 
a crippled man. The reason for us to engage in a missionary enterprise, the reason for us to, to give, to send, to pray, is because there is still a crippled world that is out there. And the reason in the story introduces him, him as, as a paralyzed man. See, the story, this is, this, is the first, this is the first action of Jesus Christ in his ministry. This is the establishment of missions. And the establishment of missions is presented to us through a very interesting metaphor. Jesus is home. The crowd is there. That always happens. That's amazing. Packed churches, Jesus in the middle, awesome. Oh, I have a commercial for you before I talk to you about the third person. We humans have the tendency to point fingers and say, well, you know what? Here we are only, only true worshipers are welcome here. If you're here by tradition, mm, mm, mm. if you're here by obligation, mm, mm. but you know what the scripture says? It says, large numbers... There was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Praise the Lord for Jesus. You know why? Because he doesn't care what brings us to church. We humans do, because we're messed up. But he doesn't. He's not in the business of judging. He's in the business of loving. He preached the word to them. That's so important because now we say Jesus is there. The crowd is, is packed. I mean, the place is packed. Who cares what brought you there? The place is packed. But there is a problem. There is a world out there that is crippled. Why the figure, why the met metaphor of a paralyzed man? Because paralysis, paralysis means if you are a paralyzed person, if you're crippled, you cannot get anywhere on your own. That's why our, the mission field, the mission target, the object of the missionary enterprise is a paralyzed world that could not get to Jesus on its own. Let me describe this paralyzed world. Is, is paralyzed by drugs. You don't have to go to China or to India to see that. Just, just leave this secluded area and you'll find it. The crippled world is paralyzed by all the isms. Consumerism, materialism, racism. There are a lot of isms that are crippling this world. You don't have to go to Africa to see them. The crippled world is, is, is now is crippled by immorality. Family is under attack. It, it, just you don't have to go, you don't have to go to Ghana to, to, to write stories about polygamy in Ghana. You just have to go to downtown Toronto. It's a crippled world. It's a world that is crippled by darkness. I remember that song. I, I was looking for it for this morning. Couldn't find it. Couldn't pay the, the license fee. No, nah, never mind. It's a song that says, In this love of darkness, we are given light. 
hope for all the dying. How will they know? How will they know that Jesus loves them and his heart is aching? Look him by the millions, blinded slaves to sin. Inside they are dying. How will they know? See, there is a world that is blind, that is crippled. The figure here is that the world is paralyzed. Sin is crippling. Religious syncretism is crippling. Materialism is crippling. Agnosticism is crippling. Islam, Hinduism, affluenza, all of those things are crippling. You're saying you're talking about a new religion, Islam, we know. Hinduism, we know what is affluenza. That's the disease of the West. People who are so affluent that they rely on gold. They are crippled. So here are the actors on the mission. Jesus, the answer. The church, praising him. And a world out there, dying. So here comes the fourth element in the missionary equation. I call them the missionaries. These four, this says that, it says that some men, four, came carrying him to bring him to Jesus. And, and, and it's interesting, this statement, because it says they could not get him to Jesus, listen to this indictment, church, because of the crowd. <laughs> That's the fourth element. That's the fourth type of people in the church. I had to mention them. See, there are those who are there enjoying his presence in spirit and in truth. There are those who are there because of tradition. I hope they're a minority. There are those who are there because of obligation. I hope they're also a minority. There are also those who are there who stand in the way between Jesus and the lost. You know, legalism is the pits. Somebody said that there's a portion of Christians who are responsible for the world not to see Jesus. Because we have put a lot of religion between them and Jesus. You know, uh, one of my, my daughters, uh, we were talking with, um, with her about, about her journey and all of that. And, and she asked me the question, Dad, you all the time you say Jesus here, Jesus there. You sound like a Jesus freak, Dad. I said, yes, I am. And... Um, she said to me, how do you know Jesus? That was a good question. For us in our generation, we said, Jesus said, and that settles it. But my daughter grew up in postmodern Europe. So she asked me the question. As she was asking the question, we were at church at Starbucks. That's her church. And we met every Tuesday while she was in college at Starbucks. Those were our dates. When I was in town, she would say, are you in town, Dad? Yeah. How about church? Sure, we met at Starbucks. That was her only church. We sat there in front of her latte and my chai latte. And we were having theological conversations. I know that I'm being recorded. That sounds like heresy. For many of them, 
That's the only church they go to. She asked me the question, so dad, how do you know Jesus? And I was sweating. I said, Lord, give me the right answer here. I have one chance. She asked the question, I have one chance. And so I, I recall that in, 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 in the Gospel of John, the, the disciples asked the Lord the question, show us the Father. And Jesus said, you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Wow, what an answer. Because Jesus was all perfect, all love, incarnational. Wow, what an answer. And I said, you know what, honey? It, about 2,000 years ago, the disciples asked Jesus, show us God. The quest of finding God was finally fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus said, you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And the disciples said, whoa, we love the Father. Wow, if this is the Father, wow. And I said, you know what? You have seen the church, you have seen Jesus. The church is the body of Christ. You have seen the church, you have seen Jesus. And my daughter said, wow, then don't, I don't like Jesus. I said, why? Because I've seen the church, Dad. She said, Daddy, the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Daddy, the church is the only army that they specialize in gossiping, and they call it prayer request. <laughs> because of the crowd. There's a segment in the church that I pray is just a small zit in the body of Christ, but in some places has become a cancer. Because of the crowd. When I, when I accepted the challenge of humbly, of being a general superintendent, I, I begged the Lord, Lord, allow me to be someone who will bring to you your bride spotless and without a wrinkle the way you deserve her. We cannot offer you less than that. Because of the crowd, we are losing the next generation, friends. But I'm not going to dwell there. I just had to mention this as a commercial. The sermon comes tomorrow. So here's, here's the equation. Jesus, the center of everything. Amen? Jesus, the answer. The church, in all its dimensions, the divine and the human dimension of the church, all of them there in front of Jesus. A world that is crippled, that cannot come to Jesus, and now you have, now I'm going to start preaching. Now we have the four. I love the four. I call them the missionaries. They do not, I love the fact that they didn't spend a lot of time pointing fingers at the crowd and telling them, because of you. No, 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 no. Let me tell you the, the three things about these guys. Because these are the things that define missionaries. Whether here in Canada or abroad, there are three things that these guys reflect that define missionaries. The first thing is that they know that they know that they know that Jesus is the answer. They know that. They say, whoa. Our friend is crippled. Jesus is the answer. We got to do something. The first identifier of a true missionary is someone who knows 
that they know, that they know, that they know that Jesus is the answer. See, if, if you do not know that Jesus is the answer, you're going to go in circle and circles, you know, like a doggy, you know, a doggy just trying to go to sleep. These guys realized that Jesus was the answer. Because of that, they have a second thing, and this is the second identifier of a missionary. They had a sense of urgency. They had a sense of urgency. They said, you know what? Jesus is here today. The crippled world is there today. This may be our only chance to connect darkness with light so that light can overcome it. This is our only chance. We cannot wait for the best opportunity. We cannot sit down and wait for Jesus to be by himself ready because you know what? What if, what if this is going to happen just like this preacher's sweater for his dad? This poor preacher spent over 10 months looking for the best time to deliver the right gift. These four men had a sense of urgency. They decided that this was their only chance to introduce the crippled world to Jesus. And here's the third, the third characteristic. They were willing to do something irrational for the sake of the crippled world. See, it says that they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. So very, very nonchalant. It says there, so they made an opening in the roof about Jesus. Come on, that was not just whatever. I had the privilege of uh, being in Capernaum and, 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 and the place where there are all, only ruins. And, and we went to the place where this event happened. It's believed to have been the house of, of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. You know, Jesus didn't have a house. So he stayed with his buddies. And, and uh, so somebody asked me, why is that, a, that uh, the majority of people who support missions are women? What's the deal? Is, is, is missions a, a women stuff? And I said, no, but if you look at the scripture, the women supported the apostles. It's biblical. Women have this thing about not only believing, but they, they say, well, we believe, we get with it. It was at Peter's mother's, mother-in-law's house. Archaeologists believe that it was a nice house. Of course, Peter was poor, but he married well. When I was introduced in Canada, somebody said, well, behind a great man, there is a great woman. And I said, no, that's not true. There's no such a thing as behind. I believe that beside, the Lord made Eve out of a rib, not out of a vertebrae. Beside, 
a great man, there is a great woman, and vice versa. And a very surprised mother-in-law. <laughs> now picture this. Picture this. You're having a, a party. The, the, the place is packed. And this beautiful modular building is so packed that someone decides to open a hole right on the roof. You will not be happy. Pastor, you will not be a happy camper. That's irrational, don't you think? In the culture of Jesus, that would have been enough grounds for a stoning. In my culture, that's enough grounds for a shooting. That's their pastime there. In America, that will be enough for a lawsuit. That's their pastime there. I don't know what your pastime here is, but it will be grounds for that. This is irrational. Who in their right mind would open a hole on somebody else in somebody else's roof? Wasn't even theirs. Wow. Talking about silly stuff. Then I realized that I was in Cincinnati studying to be a planner. I was a planner. I was an architect and, and a Fulbright scholar. And I decided, you know what, this is awesome. I'm going back to Guatemala, and now I'm going to be a bilingual guy with a, a bunch of degrees. And I'm going to go. And, and I was a college professor. I was the youngest college prof. I, this is just perfect. We had a home. We had, I mean, everything, you know. And so the Lord just gets on my case. Next thing we know, I'm working for the church, but I'm still, you know, trying to one foot here, one foot there, and go back to Guatemala and go back to university and, and say, well, you know, I'm going to be a consultant for Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, and I'm glad to be teaching here. And so I go to a conference. One month into the job, I go to a conference in Ecuador. And uh, I do the teaching, and Louis Bussell, at that time he was director of uh, the region, South America, and he talked to Steve Weber, and Steve said, I want you to sit next to me in the plane on our way to Miami from Quito, Ecuador, and we sit in the plane, and in the plane, Steve says to me, you know what, Louis wants you to go as missionary to Ecuador. I said, well, you know what, my wife, <laughs> my wife is going to be really mad. See, we have spent two years in America, you know. We, we left everything. We went to America. I mean, I ended up mopping floors and cleaning bathrooms, literally, and all of that. And my wife was nothing of this anymore. So I said, well, you talk to her and let me know. So we are in Miami. I, I called, and I said, I'm going to give you an answer today. So I took the phone and called and said, honey, those, those gringos are nuts. <laughs> I said, can you believe I mean, we, we, we spent two years away, and, and we said we're working for them and all of this. And I went to Ecuador, and guess what? They want us to go as missionaries to Ecuador. Can you believe that? And you know, honey, we're just painting the, 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 our house back, and you, your stuff is still in boxes. Can you believe they're nuts? And I was hoping for my wife to say, no way. And she said, well, the Lord is, has been calling us, hasn't he? So let's go, hon. 
ouch. And there we are, digging a hole in the roof of our safety net. We love Guatemalan food. We love Guatemalan people. They're kind of nice. We have a lot of family there. We are three times as large as the big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> Probably five times. We love family and food and fellowship. And the Lord said, there's a dying world out there. And Jesus is the only answer. Well, in the process, this is the part that fascinates me. Because the, the equation of missions with all these actors, Jesus at the center, the church in action with all its different components, including the ones who are in the way, the missionaries who have a passion the, mission, the, the missionaries who have a sense of urgency, the missionaries who are willing to do radical stuff, to leave everything behind, to open a roof on, a hole in the roof of their finances, their family, their friends, a church that's, that is willing to do whatever it takes. But then verse 5 sums it up. When Jesus saw their faith, their faith, he told the crippled man, son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, wait, wait a second. This, has to, this is another sermon. I'm not going to spend time on it. I'm just going to put salt and pepper so that you could chew on it. <laughs> this has two things that, that, that trouble me. One, we have been saying, I even preached about it yesterday, that we believe by faith. It is our faith that saves us. But he said, when Jesus saw their faith... He told the man, you are saved. Well, wait a second. You know what that means is that our faith can move the hand of God to save the world. Here's the second thing that is very intriguing. They brought him because he was crippled. He was paralyzed. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. See, don't worry about you providing the right answer. All you have to do is to know that Jesus is the answer, to have a sense of urgency, and to open a hole in the roof. He will answer to the right need, whatever that is. I know that this was probably a devotional time, but it has been in places like this where people keep on asking us, to open holes on roofs. What roof do you need to drill this morning? In, in groups like this, you know, <laughs> there's a lady who came in and, and said to me, you know what, I've been given to missions all my life, but you know what, today was awful because the Lord called my grandson. And I'm not going to see him anymore. Well, others have to drill a hole on the roof of their financial stability. Well, 
Others have to drill a hole on the roof of their ministerial stability. Whatever it is, you have to give up. And then go have a cup of coffee.